So you know the drill. Make sure to follow wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow as well as rate and leave a comment. And yeah, let's get right into it. So a whole bunch has happened in the week of the 23rd from the shooting of Jacob Blake to uh, the RNC to the NBA briefly shutting down and along with several other sports and athletes speaking out to the whole situation with Jacob Blake and the Kenosha shooting and uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the um, domestic terrorist in in Wisconsin. But I just wanted to talk about the, the RNC and the DNC and the parallels of what happened with uh, their conferences or their conventions. And yeah, so I'm just going to start off with the DNC real quick. So to keep it brief, uh, all the DNC basically was virtue signaling to anti-racism and a lot of signaling towards moderate conservatives. Obviously, in theory, this is a pretty good strategy. Um, But the problem is when you don't talk about policy or anything really concrete in terms of what you're going to do in the future, it just comes off as um, it just gets tiring. And especially in the anti-racism sense, it's easy to talk about how you're going to be anti-racist and how you're going to uh, put an effort to stand in front of racism and completely erase all of that. And But like the actual act of being anti-racist is much, much more difficult. And on top of it being um, pretty boring and dragging on at times, the production value wasn't all that great either. Um, I didn't enjoy, I, I will say, like, I did enjoy Biden's speech. I did enjoy Obama's speech, but, and um, Michelle Obama's speech as well. But I'm having a hard time understanding what exactly the Democratic Party um, was looking to accomplish um, with this outside of reaching to a potential moderate voter base. Um, so, there's that. There's what I have to say about the DNC uh, for right now. So with that being said, moving on to the RNC, it was a whole total tone switch. Um, you had, especially on the first day, and it sort of wavered and it uh, died down towards the end. But on the first day, they brought out all the energy, the fear mongering, the yelling, everything. And for if you're a moderate and and they had they brought answers to what was going on in the world in the country in terms of um the protesting or the riots or whatever you want to call them and um this whole idea of law and order was something that they were they they were trying to drill into our minds and while it's not a nuanced correct response to the struggles the hundreds of years of systemic racism the Republican National Convention provided answers that were easy and simple and very easy to digest for um, a moderate, for a moderate voter to get behind and potentially vote for Trump in the 2020 election. So the Republican National Convention didn't feature a lot of uh, policy either. Um, they took the identity politics route and brought on a lot of speakers who were um, women of color, uh, people of color black people um they had an immigration ceremony which was later found out to be 
people who didn't really consent to being uh, a part of a political performance. Um, and yeah, they essentially brought on a lot of uh, minorities and marginalized groups to talk about they all came up with the same recycled story of here's how I came up, here's how Trump helped me, and it was just a whole um, hype-up thing for Trump. And how if they came up and they were able to find some sense of wealth and prosperity and they're part of marginalized groups, so can you. Uh, you know, pull up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And the, the common uh, conservative takes that we often hear today in 2020 and the, the common response to the ingrained systemic racism that exists in this country. So naturally, this uh, obviously got old really fast as well. And obviously, they weren't the only people who came up that spoke. He had a lot of um, his children um, and people who he was related to and people who um, happened to be in his administration came to speak as well. But they spent a lot of their time hyping him up and not a lot of uh, policy was said either. And yeah, we just spent a lot of time talking about how Trump was a great guy and how he's a great candidate moving forward and keeping a lot of America's values. If that's what, if what you saw in the RNC was indicative of what you believe valuable to this country. So back to the law and order. Um, you're a moderate right now. You have no idea who to vote for. You're looking outside. You're seeing all these protests or riots or however you want to frame it. And you hear uh, Trump and the Republican Party going on and on about bringing back law and order and keeping us away from the the socialism, the the far left radicalism that that the Democratic Party will bring when, if if and when Biden comes into power. And if you have even half of a brain and you've uh, if you know anything about Biden's rhetoric and you know anything about Biden's policy, he has very little interest as of right now to far left, truly progressive uh, policy. But he does have the potential to uh, veer towards that direction. Anyways, back to the point. To some people, this is like music to their ears. You have an answer to this ongoing issue that has sort of um, brought a lot more questions and answers. And then you have this very simple answer in, okay, let's support this police and like be much more harder on crime. And then that'll get rid of the riots altogether. And the thing with the Republican Party, they've, they've done a really great job at... Um, promoting this and making this sort of um it was one of the many hallmarks of their their whole convention and the democrats and biden have practically nothing to respond with because if you're the democratic party or your biden in particular you can't be like okay i support the riots go out and riot i good job because obviously on in an optical sense that doesn't look good and you can't on this side on this issue you can't be like let i i support the police because then you're starting to lose a good portion of your base your voter base so how biden responses how the democratic party will respond to this i'm very curious about and this is all sort of feeding into um 
the loss of support um, statistically in, in Black Lives Matter and that movement. And I also want to sort of reiterate, we know that a lot of what Black Lives Matter is doing and is is not it's not violent or anything that's truly negative in nature they they don't promote rioting and a majority of what's going on around the country is peaceful in terms of um demonstrations and protests and what have you the problem is is how the media is framing black lives matter and how the right is framing black lives matter and you'll be hard pressed to find any uh radical left terrorism um or any just left violence in that matter um but you'll find a, a very long list of terrorists domestic terrorists and and school shooters who happen to share the values of many conservative minds and oftentimes have very far right ideologies but hey man that's tough uh politics are crazy but i just i've been sort of getting into politics a lot recently uh sort of out of necessity rather than interest primarily because of uh, what's going on in the world and the response with the democratic party has to be it's, it's less than optimal it needs to improve in my personal opinion and and i know i'm not the only person who shares this sentiment um my only hope is that the marginalized communities of the world and of the country, and the country in particular, um, get the support they need from the Democratic Party because uh, with everything that's going on with COVID, with with systemic racism becoming more prominent and becoming way more um, clear to everyone, I just want to make sure that my future is secure and the future of others is secure. So those are my two cents on what is going on right now. Um, I just wanted to focus on the RNC and the DNC for right now at the moment. Um, but yeah. So back to the playoffs. Um, where basically it's today is right now it's the 31st, 1207. And right now we have the Eastern Conference is set. Um, and we've already obviously played one game of the Toronto and Celtics series. And the Western Conference isn't quite set, but the Clippers and the Lakers have advanced. So I'm going to start off by talking about the Eastern Conference, and then I'm going to go into the Western Conference. I still will be talking about the second round um, because it's probably more clear than you might assume it is. Um, so, yeah, let's go. So in the Eastern Conference, um, just like I said in the previous episode, the first round was pretty clear. Um, the only thing that I got wrong was uh, Miami actually ended up sweeping Indiana and Milwaukee fell one against Orlando. Um, my prediction with Boston and Philadelphia was a gamble, but at the same time, I feel really good about getting right uh, there. But I'll talk about that later. Um, right now, I'm going to be talking about um, Giannis and the heat Giannis going against the heat in this sense and uh how that's gonna look so both teams came out of the first round series pretty easily but the thing I want to focus on what's really important here is how Giannis will 
handle the Heat's length, um, at least in, in particular the wing position. Uh, we know that um, my prediction is obviously that Adebayo, Bam Adebayo, will be spending a lot of time on Giannis, at least in maybe in half-court situations. And in transition, I feel like if um, Igudala and Crowder can get a considerable amount of minutes, they'll be um, uh, trying to guard him as well. And one of the reasons why the Magic were able to pull through and why the Magic were able to keep it close in the end against Milwaukee um, was primarily because of um, poor shooting on uh, the Bucks' end. Uh, Middleton didn't really get going until the final game where he had a very close... He, he shot really well, and he had a damn near triple-double. But this is like... The Bucks still... They, they still... They look out of it. Giannis is Giannis, of course, but the Bucks just... They don't look or feel like what is supposed to be the Eastern, the the guys who are supposed to represent the Eastern Conference in the finals. And the Heat seem like the best equipped team to at least stop Giannis, uh, similar to how Toronto did uh, last playoffs. They have the length at, at the wing position. They have that ability to, uh, you know, build that wall in the paint and force Giannis to take deeper shots, to take mid-range shots, just any type of jump shot. Because as soon as Giannis is sort of silenced and a guy like Middleton, Middleton can't really put the team on his back. And again, we're not even sure if Bledsoe um, will perform like he usually does in the playoffs. So it's just, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm not confident in giving... Um, giving everything to the Bucks, but I feel like this will be a very long series back and forth, and I'm going to explain why. So you're the Bucks right now. You have Giannis, the Defensive Player of the Year, and presumed to be uh, MVP of 2020. And your role players in the surrounding cast is playing at a level that isn't as indicative of the record that they left with prior to the NBA shutting down. And now you're going into a series with a very defensively potent Heat team. And yes, I I want to make sure make sure that I'm clear that Giannis is still an automatic 30-point uh, scorer and he has historic analytics. He has he's been historically efficient from the field, but on the offensive end, like it seems as though teams have been able to figure out how to stop him. And last year in the playoffs, he ran into this problem against the Raptors where they, they like I said before, they beat him with length, they build a wall in the paint, and they said, all right, you, you have to shoot in order to win. And a lot of the other problems with Bledsoe, with their backcourt, and you know the fact that they just you know, couldn't guard down the stretch, it all it all snowballed and it eventually led to their demise. And the sim a similar thing is going to happen with the Heat, um, except it's going to be it's gonna be a much longer process because the Heat do not have the same firepower that the Raptors did. 
So Middleton has averaged 15 points in the previous series against the Magic, and Bledsoe averaged a measly 11 points. And they, those two guys are the very determining factors on whether or not Milwaukee can get out of this uh, mess that they've run into against the Heat. Be- primarily because we know that the Heat are going to try their best to subdue Giannis. And it'll be up to Middleton, who was, by the way, a fringe 50-40-90 player in the regular season and an all-star and Bledsoe, who is also a pretty, he used to be a 20-point scorer, and now he's been relegated to this role, obviously, with the team that's on Milwaukee, to this role of being a very sol- solid uh, defensive 3-and-D guy. And he's he has a tendency, especially from what we saw last year, with um, him sort of f- regressing as the playoffs went on and him losing his, uh, his minutes to George Hill, uh, he has a tendency to... To, to fold in the playoffs. And now is the time for Bledsoe, DiVincenzo, George Hill, Pat Connaughton, Wesley Matthews, and you know Marvin Williams, guys like that, role players who can really shoot it and get the ball moving and get the pace going to show up. And, and especially Middleton, who I feel like uh, has the potential to be a very – very good shot creator um but it all it always depends on whether or not Giannis is going so now Middleton is faced with a potential situation where Giannis won't be you know may may not be as efficient as he usually is and now all the attention is it's it's really up to him to to try and score and and get the team over the hump and I don't think that's possible. I've heard a lot of discussion about how this team is very reminiscent of LeBron James's situation in Cleveland before he had left to go to Miami. Um, a very one surrounded by one star, a team catered to one star that had a lot of uh, good defensive pieces that complemented the star's ability. And when LeBron James ran into teams like the Celtics, it was always like the Celtics decided to hone in on LeBron and decide and say, hey, like your role players have to win this game. You're not going to win this game by scoring and putting 50 on our heads. And that's exactly what the Miami Heat are going to do. Because as I have made clear, the supporting class has not been up to par and they haven't been doing exactly what it takes to get to that championship level we forget how smart of a coach Spolstra is especially considering you know he has two rings and he's coached dominant players coached against and coached for dominant players like LeBron and Dwayne Wade and his roster is just filled from top to bottom with really defensively smart and adept players from Jimmy Butler to Jay Crowder, to Enegudalu, who I mentioned before, and Bam. And and keep in mind, all of these guys can score as well on the offensive end. So with all that being said, and with how the Bucks have been playing recently in the bubble and how the Heat seem really favorable for this position to play spoiler, and how this seems like the Bucks are just 
there and they've been able to get away with these wins especially against the magic primarily because of the better team and they're well coached and they have uh you know better personnel all that but the heat from the beginning they have been the underdogs and i feel like that also plays a role in how this series will go as well um you know just jimmy butler especially being the leader of this team has is notorious for 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 really embracing that underdog role and really being in love with this idea of winning so he'll bring a lot of that as well on a team that lacks um a, a young team that lacks a lot of playoff experience Jimmy Butler you know even though he hasn't been past the second round and I'm sure that his excitement and his determination to get to that next round uh will play a role um, having him there and having him as he has been throughout the season as he has enjoyed playing that leader role throughout the season having him there will play it will it will speak volumes and you'll see it um in how um passionate the the heat are on both ends of the floor so yeah i was all over the place but with everything considered and then how the bucks seem to be on a decline whereas the heat seem to be on an incline and seem to increasing seem to be increasing in terms of ability and offensive strength and defensive potency all of that to me uh indicates towards a heat series win in seven games so in the second round in the east we have the celtics going against the raptors and both teams are coming off of a sweeping their their respective uh, first round opponents and the sweep against uh the Sixers with the Celtics was unexpected but it did inevitably lead to Brett Brown's firing and a potential um future of rebuilding once again for the 76ers so that will be interesting to see and for the Nets, obviously, we expected. I talked about that in the last podcast. We expected that to happen, um, but it's it's a good sign now. They have a lot of time to think about what next season is going to look like, especially with the uh, new coaching staff that they have under um, Jack Vaughn. And yeah, we've seen a game of the series thus far. I don't know if you want to count this as cheating or whatever, but. The Celtics did blow out the Raptors in the first game, primarily because the Raptors were missing a lot of shots. They started off slow in a game that you really, really don't want to start off slow in. Um, they turned the ball over at a high amount, and they just couldn't figure it out in the half court, um, and they couldn't get moving on on offense. And one of the main things that I noticed was, and a lot of people noticed, was the fact that Siakam you know, didn't really seem to be a, a prominent uh, force in the half-court setting. And, yes, he did get in foul trouble early, but this is like right now with how how much better their front court is in comparison to the Celtics, Siakam playing well is important. But, yeah, uh, the, the Celtics were basically able to do what they want, even though the Raptors were playing great defense. At times, especially towards the end of the game, they were playing much better defense. Uh, the The problem was they just weren't hitting any of their shots, and they couldn't really get going on offense. So, and even when they were playing pretty good defense, Tatum was 
still Tatum being the best player on the team and Kemba as well were still doing pretty much whatever they were they whatever they wanted in the half court setting. So knowing this is like the first game one was a tone setter and taking that 2-0 lead uh is pretty significant especially considering the bubble is a sort of equalizer Toronto has to look more at uh, getting their offense up to par whereas their defense as has been their bread and butter for the majority of the season they got that figured out now it's time to get those threes um, in the hole and get those easy baskets in as well and seeing the Celtics uh, score the way that they did in the absence of Hayward was promising because Hayward is obviously a 17 points per game type of guy and he can bring a lot on the offensive end. Um, it's It was promising, but we can't always, we, we can't gamble on, you know, the Raptors coming out and starting slow and having a bad game. So I still believe the Raptors can take at least two in this series, but I think the Celtics um, can can take the other four and and win the series in six, um, primarily because the Raptors, they're a great team, but with what I saw from Siakam and, and yeah, what I saw from Siakam in particular, being that I feel like he's the most important player on the team in this series, it wasn't if it wasn't enough and yes he did get in foul trouble but it seemed like he wasn't hitting shots from the outside and he wasn't able to do much while hitting the lane either and if you're Toronto knowing that you don't have the best half court offense in the world having a guy like Siakam um, especially in your potent front court in comparison to um, the Celtics uh, front court that isn't that big or fast or uh, powerful, having Siakam play at a high level in the half court is very essential. So before this game, I was sort of back and forth on who would win uh, the series, and now even after, I'm I'm still back and forth on how the series will really end up being. But I, I think I'm going to put my money on the Celtics for now, and I'd I'd like to bet on the Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Kemba Walker trio, along with the um, nice, the decent little transition defense that that they can bring against the uh, Raptors' really fast-paced transition offense that has uh, inevitably got them to the second seed in the Eastern Conference. And I want to make clear this decision uh, really wasn't uh, based off what I saw in the first game. Uh, I do think that Van Vliet will really catch fire pretty soon and I I think that game one was a fill-out game and we might be going back and forth for the first four and we'll see what goes on from there but I think the Celtics will be able to take it in six. So with this weird playoffs format we still have no idea who is in the second round of the Western Conference right now. We do know the Lakers and Clippers have moved on and I'm still going to be talking about uh, what my predictions on the second round because I think it's still pretty clear-cut either way. Um, I'll ex- I'll explain pretty briefly, but um, yeah, so I'll start off with the Lakers and whoever they're facing in the second round and then the Clippers and whoever they're facing in the second round and give my opinions on the potential four games that we can end up with. 
So the Lakers, congratulations. You did exactly what you were supposed to do. Uh, you beat the Trailblazers in five, uh, just as I had predicted. Game one was basically on the back of Damian Lillard and, you know, a poor shooting performance by everyone who's not named Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And, yeah, they they still, the Lakers still were able to uh, beat their way past the hobbling uh, Blazers team, but there is a long way to go. In the second round, it looks like the Lakers will be playing the Rockets, um, considering what's going on in the Rockets and OKC series. Um, if they play the Rockets, with what I've seen, it seems like they're pretty adamant on shooting their way into the finals or shooting their way out of the playoffs. And it works sometimes, and it's also gotten them to a position where they're in a game six battling it out with a Thunder team that has a very less than optimal half-court offense, um, especially with Lou Dort, who has to play, be on the court in order to guard Harden, but he's taking up a lot of three-point shots and ruining a lot of possessions that you know potentially be, could be scoring possessions. So knowing the Rockets' play style is very predicated on their three-point shooting, I think they're they're gonna and their defense is really good. They have a, a knack for hiding a lot of zone defense and and man uh, positioning and vice versa, obviously. And the Rockets, it, just because like living and dying by the three is is not a way to win a series or even to win a finals game. Um, obviously, you know, we have examples like the Warriors to go off of, but the thing with the Rockets is when they're shooting poorly, they'll continue to shoot threes. And in a game where you have the Lakers who are much more uh, defensively potent and in the half court setting, they'll, they'll take, they'll take their opportunities as they get them. Um, I, my hope is obviously the role players outside of, uh, AD and LeBron will continue producing as they were in the final two games of the series against the Blazers. But yeah, for right now, it looks like if the Lakers end up playing the Rockets, it looks like Lakers in six or even Lakers in five. Um, for right now, I think I would say Lakers in five, but in the event that, you know, Russell Westbrook and Eric Gordon are able to get it going, because Eric Gordon, especially from the three, has been struggling, maybe they could edge one out, edge two out in the series and potentially change the pace and, and slow the Lakers down. But, yeah, with their play style, it's not sustainable. So I think, yeah, Lakers in five for, for Rockets and Lakers. And on the other end of that, if the Thunder somehow miraculously are able to win this, the first round series against the Rockets in seven games, which is basically their only option, um, I don't think they have a chance against the Lakers. Uh, they The only reason they were able to win those games against the Rockets is because they missed a lot of shots and they took their foot off the gas. So it was a, a moment for guys like CP3 and Shea and Schroeder to really come in and get the offense going uh, in in absence of, you know, a, a high-firing 
Rockets offense, and they were able to edge those games out. The thing with the Lakers offense is it's much more sustainable. You have a guy like LeBron and you have a guy like AD who who the Thunder can't guard at all. So if the Thunder happened to face the Lakers in the second round, it would be a sweep by the Lakers, you know, primarily because of what I had previously stated and just, you know, all the confounding factors in terms of the Thunder's poor half-court offense and what they look like with CP3 when he's not on the court versus when he's on the court and, you know, how they match up with the Lakers is very bad for them and very good for the Lakers. On the other hand, we have the Clippers who managed to make it out against a Doncic-led Mavericks team, um, which I initially had the Clippers in five games. And to my surprise and to a lot of people's surprise, you know, the, the Mavericks managed to tie the game up at two games apiece. And, of course, the Clippers managed to run away with it um, because, you, you know, having a, a Doncic-led team with very little help is is not sustainable um it obviously it was more so on the side of the clippers getting back into form than it was the mavericks being a bad team um because you know like with everything that's happening with paul george and how for the first uh you know four games he was playing poorly he was playing terribly and in game five he obviously came out and posted his the best numbers that he had in the bubble and you know he regressed again in the elimination game but moving forward in order for the Clippers to be championship bound we have to see a lot of a lot more of game five Paul George um otherwise like you know Kawhi is going to give you an automatic 30 as he did in the third the first round and you know Patrick Beverly is out and the defense is looking okay, but like we need we need more from it can't just be a Kawhi led team because the reason why this for a lot of people this team was a favorite to win the championship was because of the duo of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And without Paul George, it's it's a really a team with Kawhi Leonard and a, a bunch of role players, which is Toronto all over again, except now you're in the West, which is a much more difficult situation. But anyways, um, they'll be playing whoever comes out of the Denver Nuggets um, versus Utah Jazz series. And I personally think they will be destroying (laughs) whoever comes out of that series because of what they have in terms of personnel and how that series is going for both teams. If you're the Nuggets, the hot hand of Murray and Jokic isn't really going to get you past the Clippers primarily because it's the same thing as what we got with the Mavericks with uh, Doncic and and Porzingis and Doncic we know is better than Murray and Murray I don't think um, you know considering he has a history of being particularly inconsistent I don't think I think he'll eventually just get to a point where he'll regress and with Jokic him by himself isn't enough to get past the Clippers because we know after seeing what we saw with the Mavericks, one-man shows aren't enough to get past the Clippers, even when PG isn't playing at his best, who I assume eventually he'll he'll get it into a form at some point in the playoffs, even if it's not next series. 
But yeah, in the event that the Nuggets uh, happen to take Game 7, I believe that the Clippers would be able to finish them off in 5. And I think the same goes for the Jazz, who I think are the least likely candidate to move on to the conference semifinals. Um, I think it's just going to end up being Donovan Mitchell, who has also been playing magnificently uh, with multiple 40-point games and two 50-point games. And you can't, again, like you can't really ride on that when you have a team that is as defensively capable as the Clippers. And I'm aware of uh, Gobert's presence down in the front court, but unless he brings a game like uh, he did in game three where he put up 24 and 14, I feel like his appearance for the Jazz will be largely negligible because of his offensive, uh, his lack of offensive ability. So yeah, for the Jazz, it will be a similar outcome. I think it would be Clippers in five if they ended up facing the Jazz. And as far as who I think will end up winning Game 7 on Tuesday, I think a lot of it will have to do with who um, is able to get the most threes down and who ends up starting to miss threes because both teams have shot impressively well from from the arc. Um, Both teams are around the 44% mark. And for right now, I believe believe the Nuggets... Oh, no, the the Jazz take the edge in that category by like... uh, four tenths of a decimal so uh, but still i because of the way the nuggets are structured and how they're much more catered to shooting from behind the arc i feel like they'll be the ones who are going to be able to shoot more efficiently from behind there and the jazz will begin to lag off throughout the game and the nuggets will eventually overtake them especially with murray's hot hand i feel like they're going to be the ones who are going to be able to carry it on um but Obviously, they'll meet the Clippers in the next round. But yeah, that will wrap up my round two predictions. Um, And that will wrap up the podcast as well. Stay tuned for another podcast that will go over the conference finals and potentially the finals if I want to do all that together. Um, And yeah, so that's the podcast. Thank you for listening. Make sure to, as I said in the beginning, rate, follow, do whatever you have to do. Tell your friends, your family to get this podcast out there. And yeah, feel free to contact me with any questions or any advice on how you you would like to see the podcast and what you would like to see in the future. And yeah, that's it.